0: What comes to your mind when you hear the word Reformation? certain pictures come up, images, or is it blank? Or does your mind immediately run to the 16th century and think of Martin Luther, the monk, nailing his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle Church? Or maybe you're reminded of John Calvin penning down the institutes of the Christian religion The question is, what is reformation? What does the verb reform stand for? What does it mean for us practically? The definition of the word reform in the Oxford English Dictionary goes like this. It means bring about a change in someone so that they no longer behave in an immoral, criminal or self-destructive manner or also change oneself for the better. What is interesting? In the original Middle English, this word means restore, as in peace, or bring back to the original condition, which we'll focus on today, about reform. Technically, reform in the Christian world means going back to the word, going back to the church the way it started out, the way it's supposed to be, the way God commanded us to do it. I mentioned reformers from the 16th century, but now let's go back in time to the reformers, of the days of the Old Testament. Out of some of the reformers of the Word that the Word of God mentions, the one I will preach on today is Nehemiah, and more specifically, the ending of Nehemiah, his book, chapter 13. Some of the things we'll look at is what was needed in Nehemiah's time to reform. One. There was evil done by the high priest. Two, the house of God was forsaken. Three, Sabbath profaned, and then polluted marriages. And then after we'll look into all those specifically, we will look into the lives of other reformers briefly and ask ourselves a question. Due to what we looked at, what is required of me? What do I need to change in my life? What do I need to do? One author says this, of Nehemiah, the Jews speak as one of the greatest men of their nation. His concern for his country, manifested by such unequivocal marks, entitles him to the character of the first patriot that ever lived. In the course of the divine providence, he was a captive in Babylon. But there, his excellences were so apparent that he was chosen by the Persian king to fill the office, the most respectable and the most confidential in the whole court. Here he lived in ease and affluence. He lacked no manner of thing that was good. And here he might have continued to live in the same affluence and in the same confidence. But he could enjoy neither, so long as his people were distressed, the sepulchres of his father fathers trodden underfoot, the altars of his God overturned, and his worship either totally neglected or corrupted. He saw the peace of Jerusalem, he prayed to God for it, and he was willing to sacrifice wealth, ease, and safety and even life itself, if he might be the instrument of restoring the desolation of the nation of Israel. Nehemiah chapter 13 is about the reforms that Nehemiah has done in his country upon his return to Jerusalem. He already served as a governor of Jerusalem for 12 years when he first asked leave of the king. After serving 12 years, building the wall, dedicating it, rejoicing with the people, making vows, He goes back to report to the king. And at the end of the year, one year, he comes back. And upon his return, he discovers that the state of the people in Jerusalem is in deterioration. There is corruption in leadership. People are neglecting their duties. The house of God is forsaken. The law of God is disobeyed. It only took a year for the people to start quickly becoming like all the nations around them. Not only that, but also during Nehemiah's first presence when he was there, the people made a vow, particularly concerning the Sabbath and all the, all the other things that they started breaking and disobeying. Nehemiah, upon his arrival, discovers all these things and starts taking action quickly. I will begin reading from verse 4 of chapter 13. It says, the first three verses, they give a brief summary of what Nehemiah has completed upon his return to Jerusalem, but the narrative begins in verse 4. Verse 4, chapter 13, Now, before this, Elijah the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the thighs of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priests. but during all this i was not in jerusalem for in the 32nd year of artaxerxes king of babylon i had returned to the king then after certain days i abstained leave from the king and i came to jerusalem and discovered the evil that eliaship had done for tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of god and it grieved me bitterly therefore i threw all the household goods of tobiah out of the room then i commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back unto them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Eliashib, a high priest at that time in Israel, in charge of the storm surrounding the temple of God, has done something unbelievably and unthinkably evil. Tobiah is given an apartment in the building joined to the temple so that whenever Tobiah pays a visit to Jerusalem, he has a place to stay, a nice, honorable place where he'd be looked upon. So, who is this Tobiah? What is the big deal about? him having an apartment in the temple. We will look back in Nehemiah on some of the verses of the conflict and what a violent enemy of the Jews he was. Starting in chapter 2, the first uh, two verses 9 and 10. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains over of the army and horsemen with me. When Sambla the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply distressed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Uh, Several verses down, 18 and 19. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sandal the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Then chapter 4. Verse 3 and 7 and 8. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up, in it, he will break down their stone wall. Now it happened when Samuel, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were being to be closed. They became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. This is the same guy who lives in Jerusalem now in the temple in honor. Next, uh, Nehemiah chapter six, what Roman read to us last week, and I said, "Should such a man as I flee, and who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in." Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid and nag that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me, my God. Remember Tobiah and Samuel according to these, their works and the prophetess not die and the rest of the prophets who would have me afraid. And in the last, Tobiah sent letters to frighten me in verse 19. So Tobiah, one of the reasons he so easily sneaked his way into the temple of God is he's related to the high priest through his own marriage and the marriage of his son. For example, or analogy is to see what was really so evil about what was going on is Let's imagine, now that Roman's not here, that a cardinal of the Catholic Church was related to some of our deacons through some family marriages. And this man is evil. He hates our school, hates our Protestant church, stood in our way numerous times during the early stages of us buying this building and establishing a school. But Pastor Roman is gone this week, so the deacons decide, hey, this man is rich, powerful, important in the city. He's related to us it would be a good idea to give him a part of the building for his office so that he can stay there whenever he wants. And we go ahead and do that. How unthinkable, how evil, the same, the enemy of whatever we're trying to do here suddenly becomes a friend. Nehemiah steps in quickly to resolve this problem. His response is not complicated. It's actually quite simple. He throws his stuff out, cleanses the room, and puts the room back to its previous use. You would think that if Tobiah was there, Something similar would have happened when Jesus was in the temple, throwing things out and whipping those who were selling the goods. When you have a sin for application, when you have sin taken your room in your heart, what do you do about it? What steps do you take? What is your response? Do you overcomplicate things, overthink it? Do you know why you do that? Because the answer is pretty simple, but it is hard. The answer is, cut that sin off, throw it out. In the words of our Christ, it is more profitable that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. The next passage is, the next reform, house of God forsaken, verses 10 through 14. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then now Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse, Shalemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Pediah. And next to them was Hanan. The sons of Zakor, the son of Metaniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was so to distribute to their brethren. And then we have Nehemiah out of the stressful situation that was definitely not easy for him and didn't bring him any pleasure. He goes, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. We have to understand that Nehemiah going against the top rulers of the city of Jerusalem. He's not being popular at all, going through this. And it is no surprise that the house of God is forsaken, considering that Tobiah was living in the, the temple. It is no wonder that people were disappointed and decided not to bring any more of their tithes and offerings. And that the Levites, because of that, and the singers went back to their own fields, to their work. So the whole structure of worship, of order, in the temple of God falls apart because of the evil that the rulers have brought in. Nehemiah sees the problem and goes to the rulers, contending with them. Why is the house of God forsaken? Rulers, we can also say fathers, husbands, businessmen, deacons. Are we letting sin unchecked? And because of that, our people, our children, are perishing. We have to stop repen- start repenting. We have to start reforming, because the day is coming when God will contend with us, as he did with Nehemiah, Nehemiah with the rulers. I see why his house is forsaken. Reform 3, the Sabbath profaned, verses 15 to 22. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men have tired while well, there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Yet you bring added wrath in Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens will be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath. And Nehemiah repeats it again, his prayer. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Again, Nehemiah approaches the leaders, the nobles of the day, and reprimands them. He brings up the past history to bring the point home. Look, he says, your very own fathers did this evil. We were captive for 70 years. Why are you adding to the wrath that is already on us? It's not like it's all over yet. We're still struggling here. And what he mentions is in Nehemiah, the years of the captivity, 70 years, was one of the great evils that Israel, the nation, did was they profaned the Sabbath days. And it literally says in the end of the passage where they were taken to the captivity, all their young men were killed by the sword. It says, to fulfill the, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. They come back from the captivity, they do the same thing again. You can almost feel Nehemiah's frustration concerning this. Next is polluted marriages, verse 23 to 31. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amen and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your sons your daughters or wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. And then he brings up history against Solomon, the king. Of it, did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of you doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joah, the son of elijah the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanbilet, the Horonite, the ally of Tobiah, it was against Israel. So therefore Nehemiah says, I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring the wood offering and the first fruits at a point in time. Then Nehemiah's passage ends with the words, Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah is striving hard at the reform of his people. What is happening with the mixed marriages is due to, they're not not only breaking the law of Moses, the law of God, but also due to the mixed marriages the Hebrew nation is ceasing to exist. Their children are forgetting their own language. Here he's being harsh and rightly so. One of the grandsons of the high priest is in love his enemy. So, what does Jeremiah do? Just drives him out. He's had enough. Reformer As Jeremiah and as many others, history has shown, they're usually not nice. They're not of a mild temperament. They bring up a lot of controversy with them. I like this quote by Alexander McLaren. He writes, This last chapter of his book is but a sad close for a record which began with such high hope and tells of such strenuous self-sacrificing effort. The last page of many a reformer's history has been like Nehemiah's, a sad account of efforts to stem the ebbing tide of enthusiasm and the flowing tide of worldliness. The heavy stone is rolled a little way up the hill, and as soon as the one strong hand is withdrawn, down it tumbles again to the old place. What other reformers do we know of that come to our mind that did much for the kingdom, only to be betrayed, ignored, cast out? And be forgotten. Uh, one of the prominent ones was William Tyndale. He was an English scholar who became a leading figure in the Protestant Reformation. In the years leading up to his execution, he was betrayed by his friend Phillips, the agent of either Henry or English ecclesiastics, or possibly or both. Tyndale was arrested and imprisoned in the castle of Wilverden for over 500 days of horrible conditions. He was tried for heresy and treason in a ridiculously unfair trial and convicted. Tyndale was then strangled and burned at the stake in the prison yard, October 6, 1536. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. This prayer was answered three years later when the Bible was published. Another one that's closer to our home is Jonathan Edwards, a few hundred years after. After there was such a great revival broken out in New England, his own church voted him out that he was trying to bring reform about the Lord's Supper. And then our own church. How many reforms have been done by Pastor Carmen Rizzo? Pastor Roman. What about the discipleship groups that are going now? It is a reform. We are reforming our church back to what Jesus has asked us to do, what he com- not didn't ask us, but commanded us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Reformers, they're the one that can righteously repeat Nehemiah's concluding prayer. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. It is a prayer that, when we read it first, it seems like, Nehemiah, you're self-righteous. Why remember you? you know, you're know, you a sinner just like the rest of us. But when you give it all, and you are forgotten, or you are counted as an enemy of your own people, you've only got to go to. This was the case with Nehemiah and others. A reminder for us is verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And in conclusion, what is required of me? Be always reforming, semper reformandum. We are memorizing Romans chapter 12 with our discipleship group, and the first Verses there are, it starts like this. I, B, C should therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable will of God. What is required of me? Give my body up for a sacrifice, a living sacrifice for the rest of my lives, Every morning. We wake up, Lord, why do I have to reform in my life? Why do I can sacrifice for you and for the rest of the lives? Why? Because Christ gave his life for us. There's two ways of renewing our minds, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. One of them is reading the word, meditating on the word. The other is prayer. As one preacher said, it's like breathing in and out, prayer in the word. Discipleship group. The reform that we are doing right now in this church is one of those avenues that you can easily join in. Participate, be accountable, study the Word, let it sink in your mind, meditate in it, write out an exposition of the Word, and then pray for each other. But there are some of you here that are not born again. No amount of reform will change your eternity. No amount of reading God's Word or prayer. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Come to Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost. Look at the thief on the cross as he sees Jesus as his only hope and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. God will remember you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to the church of God, to his people, Christ is coming back again. What are we doing? He who testifies to these things says, surely, I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.